Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. speaking to you today and what I'm going to do because I'm, I do write philosophy, produce philosophy in a variety of media uh, but I also have an art practice and I'll try and show different ways of uh, coming to terms with the situation of a planetary crisis we are finding ourselves in today. So today humans in different geopolitical locations are less and less able to see themselves as inhabitants or if they belong to a more privileged class as citizens of the world. Instead, we are increasingly being interpolated to recognize ourselves as planetary beings, de-anchored and dislodged, a realization which involves having to counter with the fact that, as Deepesh Chakravorty puts it, the planet remains profoundly indifferent to our existence. Yet this indifference on the part of the planet needn't or indeed shouldn't be mutual. It is in the mobilization of our responsibility for the planet and the modes of its inhabitation that my philosophical and artistic work is enacted. Given the complexity and scale of the environmental crisis manifesting itself in rising sea levels, air pollution, accelerated species extinction, and a climate shift, it's understandable why planetarity is playing an increasingly prominent role in the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Positioned as a concept that can help us understand these changes, it has recently been used as a call to responsibility and action. In the special 2020 issue of the influential arts journal, EFLAX, you and I don't live on the same planet. Uh, in the book by Bruno Latour and others, in the book Planetary Social Thought uh, by two social scientists, Nigel Clark and Bronislaw Sersinski, and in Chakrabarti's book, The Climate of History in, the, in a Planetary Age. So the planet is big now, not like literally, although that as well, but also as a concept with which we are invited to think about ourselves, our own size, like diminishing size, and our own responsibility as well. And so it's, it's within the framework of the recently postulated epoch of the Anthropocene, an epoch in which the human is said to have become a geological agent, that planetary thinking has most often been outlined. Chakrabarti makes a strong plea for adopting the planet as a particularly relevant concept in the current geopolitical moment due to its ability to grasp a dynamic ensemble of relationships, much as Hegel's state or Karl Marx's capital were, an ensemble that constitutes the Earth system. So basically, a lot of these theorists are saying that we really need to get on with the planet, with thinking in planetary terms. Many of the theorists engaging with the issue of, planetary, of planetarity today are doing so in dialogue with post-colonial writer Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak, specifically with the final chapter titled Planetarity in her short polemical book, Death of a Discipline, published in 2002. 
In her argument focused on the discipline of comparative literature as it was being taught in North America, Spivak opposed the abstraction of globalization, which she saw as the imposition of the same system of exchange everywhere to the differentiated politics of planetarity. So you can say globalization is out, planetarity is in. The globe is on our computers. Uh, no one lives there. It allows us to think we can aim to control it. The planet is in the species of alterity belonging to another system, and yet we inhabit it on loan, she wrote quite beautifully, I think. The planetary perspective embraced by Spivak is paradoxically yet importantly always partial. Introducing the sense of the uncanny in the reader, it's also presented as a demand and a call to responsibility. How is this responsibility to be experienced, enacted, or perhaps negated? Who is its addressee, its subject? And is this subject always human? These questions, which have for a long time guided my academic and artistic practice, call for an in-depth examination of the very constitution of the human as both a species and a historical subject. Adopting the geological probe of deep time, I propose we need to look at the emergence of the human in conjunction with surrounding technologies, such as tools and other artifacts, but also communication in various modes, be it everyday language, storytelling, ethics, art, and media. We also need to explore the entanglement of human, non-human forms of intelligence, including the promises and threats offered by AI. This exploration needs to overcome the figure-ground distinction typically adopted in the humanities as a model for analyzing the world to embrace the planetary model used by Earth science. Yet I also want to suggest that if it is to exercise a meaningful sense of responsibility and not just an aesthetic sensibility, a planetary perspective in research needs to be anchored in the socio-political concerns of the here and now primarily the ecological and economic crises, but also the gendering and racialization of the apocalyptic narratives brought in at the responses to those crises. So as well as looking into the human and non-human past, we need to look into the future of the human and of human habitat. For this human future to have a future, its timeline needs to be considered and experienced in contiguity with the needs and demands of non-humans, from animals through to mycelium, incense, plants, and rocks. And of course, sometimes these demands will be contradictory. We will not all demand the same thing. This entangled mode of seeing the planet in terms of Earth systems creates the ground for enacting said responsibility. It calls for a responsible response, even if the conditions and principles of this response will still need to be worked out. I'm going to show you a clip now from a film of mine called Exit Man, where some of these ideas are explained in a different medium. The belief in seemingly interminable growth has led to depletion, scarcity, and the crisis of biological and social life. This apocalyptic state of events has been called the Anthropocene. Stretching back at least 250 years, 
to the early days of fossil fuel excavation and burning. The Anthropocene can't be seen, and hence known, by us contemporary humans, because of the vastness of time across which it has unfolded. It can only be visualized, singularly yet repeatedly. Such visualizations usually draw on apocalyptic tropes straight from the Book of Revelation. Images of the blackening of the sun, of heaven falling onto the earth, of lands being moved out of their places. Yet they only show us what we are capable of seeing, while hiding the most dramatic message of the Anthropocene, the end of man and everything else. No picture can convey the fact that soon there will be nothing to see, and no one to see it. Current Anthropocene visuality ultimately has a mollifying effect. We are thus slowly being appeased into accepting the status quo about the condition of our planet. Okay, so this is a clip from um, a film called Exit Man, which is part of a, uh, it's a short film and a short book. I do things very short these days uh, in line with attention spans. So the book was called The End of Man, A Feminist Counter-Apocalypse. Um, and it's a kind of dual attempt to respond to the current condition, uh, both available open access, so you can, if you're interested, you can follow them up. Uh, this response to the planetary concerns that I'm trying to articulate in my work in different media inscribes itself in what Elizabeth Ellsworth and Jamie Cruz have termed in their book, Making the Geological Now, The Geological Turn. What kind of interpolation does the proclamation of this geological turn make towards us? And why do we have to be concerned with geology now and how do we do it? How should we conceptualize and contextualize our philosophical efforts if the context is to be provided by a whole planet? And most importantly, what are the conditions of the present moment that this geological turn is supposedly pointing to? So let me cite from a 2011 National Geographic article uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. by Elizabeth Colbert. She's of the kind of six extension fame. Um, probably the most significant change from a geological perspective is one that's invisible to us, the change in the composition of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide emissions are colorless, odorless, and in an immediate sense, harmless. But their warming effects could easily push global temperatures to levels that haven't been seen for millions of years. So there is something in the air at the moment, literally. And this something is a mixture of cosmic dust and human-induced pollution. This something has recently gained the name the Anthropocene. So there is something at stake with the geological and the Anthropocene that is just too serious a business for philosophers and other humanity scholars and other scholars and other breathing, breathing living human beings to ignore. Over the last decade, I've been working on developing a possible set of responses to the exhortation to humanity scholars and artists to take the geological seriously. So my response initially took the form of another small book titled Minimal Ethics for the Anthropocene, which also included a different art project working with plastics. So the book was about the future and also about the very possibility of there being a future for humans, for non-humans, and last but not least, for life itself. This arose out of my earlier work on ethics, where ethics for me is more about posing questions about life 
both in its social and biological aspects, than about telling people how to live. It's therefore ethics, not morality, or worse, moralism, that I'm concerned with. So onto the more philosophical argument about how to do scholarship, art, and everything else, basically how to live in the context of the whole planet, and why this context matters quite a lot. Arguably, life comes to the fore more explicitly when it's under threat. We think about life, rather than just continuing to live it, when faced with the prospect of death, be it the death of individuals due to illness, accident, or old age, the death of whole ethnic or national groups in wars and other forms of armed conflict, but also whole populations, be it human or non-human ones. It is a narrative about the impending deaths of the human population, the extinction of the human species, that is of particular interest to me in the context of this talk on life and minimal ethics. In mainstream media, the problem of extinction is usually presented as something inevitable. In the words of British scientist Stephen Emmett, author of the book 10 Billion, the current situation in which the human species finds itself can be most adequately described with a rather bland phrase, game over. So he was even ruder about this. The reason for the supposed state of events are as follows. Earth is home to millions of species, just one dominated us. Our activities have modified almost every part of our planet. We are having a profound impact on it. Our cleverness, our inventiveness, and our activities are now the drivers of every global problem we face, problem he calls an unprecedented planetary emergency, while we're approaching the population of 10 billion. Now, Emmett's practical solution to the situation is also quite blunt. Given that any possible technological or behavioral solution is unlikely uh, to work, even though it's theoretically possible, the advice he would give to his son would be to buy a gun. This is, of course, a powerful story, the goal of which is to shock and awe us into action. So without shooting our gun-wielding messenger, we should point out that there seems to be something narcissistic and masculinist about Jeremiah's of these kinds and those that tell them. Also, we humans have produced narratives about different forms of apocalypse, the end of times and the redemption that comes after this or not, ever since we developed the ability to tell stories and record them. So my aim with this project on minimal ethics was to tell a different story about the world and our human positioning within it, while taking seriously what science has to tell us about life and death. I'm mindful of philosopher John Gray's admonition in his Guardian review of Emmett's book that the planet doesn't care about the stories that humans tell themselves. It responds to what humans do and is changing irreversibly as a result. Gray's, of course, correct about his skepticism. Yet it should be noted that we humans do care about the stories we tell ourselves. More importantly, stories have a performative nature. They can enact and not just describe things, even if there are, of course, limits to what they are capable of enacting. My book on minimal ethics was one such story about life and death at both macro and micro scales, shaped into a set of philosophical propositions for non-philosophers. More specifically, its aim was to outline a viable position on ethics as a way of living a good life when life itself is said to be under a unique threat. In other words, it's a story about how we can live a good life at this geohistorical moment that is being called the Anthropocene and about what constitutes this goodness. 
the injunction to outline some kind of teaching of the good life when life itself is set to be under threat comes to me partly from Theodore Adorno's Minima Moralia, a 1944 slim volume by the Frankfurt philosopher written as a gift to his friend and collaborator Max Horkheimer and subtitled Reflections on a Damaged Life. On one level, Adorno's diagnosis seems to be similar in tenor to Emmett's. He writes, life has changed into a timeless succession of shocks. It's 1944 he writes that. Interspaced with empty, paralyzed intervals. But nothing, perhaps, is more ominous for the future that, than the fact that, quite literally, these things will soon be past thinking on. For each trauma of the returning combatants, each shock not inwardly absorbed, is a ferment of future destruction. Karl Krauss was right to call his play The Last Days of Mankind. What is being enacted now ought to bear the title After Doomsday. Yet the context of Adorno's reflections, themselves presented in a series of fragments and what we might call shards of thought, is very unique. They spring from what he perceives as life's catastrophic and irreparable destruction in the Holocaust. Bemoaning the fact that others are already envisaging the possibility of rebuilding culture as if the murder of millions of Jews and others had been just an unpleasant interlude, he sees modern life as reduced to the sphere of the private and then merely consumption, a state of events that leads to alienation and the withdrawal of vitality from life itself. Citing the Austrian writer Ferdinand Kuhnberger, Adorno laments that life does not live. But Adorno doesn't stop because of that. Instead, he goes on looking for life's traces buried in language and for the possibility of continuing with critical thought and writing, with a determination to teach us about the good life even if on a very small scale. So my own project on minimal ethics draws inspiration from Adorno's persistence in minima moralia to keep philosophizing as if against all odds, to look for signs of life in the middle of an apocalypse, even if my own context and the existential threats that shape it are very different from Adorno's. The ambition and orientation of my ethical propositions also differs from Adorno's. Even though I embrace the critical spirit of his work, I turn to various philosophies of life, as well as feminist thought, in order to outline a more affirmative framework for the times when life is said to find itself under threat on a planetary scale. My aim here is to consider to what extent we can, go, we, uh, we can make life go on, and also how we ourselves can continue to live it well while interrogating what it means to live well and whether such a consensus can actually be achieved. It needs to be said that this we of my argument is already posited as a problem, referring as it does to what philosophy and common sense have designated as humans, but also opening onto a complex and dynamic network of relations in which we humans are produced as humans and in which we remain entangled with non-human entities. The direct inspiration for my project came from a wedding of ecosex artists, Beth Stevens and Annie Sprinkle, who married Lake Calavesi, which is part of a lake system in northern Savonia, at the Anti-Contemporary Art Festival in Kuopio, Finland in 2012. So I wrote a short piece on minimal ethics as a wedding gift for them, well, for them and the lake. This human-non-human -human wedding between more than two parts wasn't Stevens and Sprinkle's first. 
In previous ceremonies, they had married the earth, the sea, the snow, and the rocks. That's playfully taking on and enacting what Donna Haraway called the nature cultural kinship. Stephen and Sprinkle's performance serves here as an entry point into a different mode of philosophizing, one that borrows from artistic sensibilities and that produces ideas with things and events rather than just with words. This mode of philosophical production is necessarily fragmented. It gives up on any desire to forge systems, ontologies, or worlds, and makes itself content with minor, even if abandoned, interventions into material and conceptual unfoldings. A minimal ethics I've attempted to outline is one such possible intervention. Now, the mode of working I'm employing here mobilizes what could be termed a post-masculinist rationality, a more speculative, less directional mode of thinking and writing. This notion develops from the Canadian thinker Darren Barney's concept of post-masculinist courage. For Barney, courage that is post-masculinist is not necessarily therefore feminine or even really post-masculine, though it is likely to be feminist. Barney's call is inspired by political theorist Wendy Brown, who has outlined a vision for a post-masculinist politics in which freedom is reconciled with love and recognition. Such politics requires much courage and willingness to risk. Barney suggests this sort of courage needs to be distinguished from the sort of bravado whereby men seek to exert control over everything around them by the force of instrumental rationality. Well, exhibit A, you know what happens in our parliament currently. It's a long list of names that would be competing for you know, a claim towards that uh, masculine rationality. Uh, mixed up with bravado. Post-masculinist post rationality for Barney involves the courage to face the uncertainty over that which we can't control. The courage to, let, to be let go into action that begins something truly new and unpredictable. Um, a post-masculinist rationality is therefore not non- or anti-rationalist. It just calls for a different modulation of rationality, one that remains more attuned to its own modes of production. It's always already embodied and immersed, responding to the call of matter and its various materializations, such as humans, animals, plants, inanimate objects, as well as the relations between them. Such post-masculinist rationality remains suspicious towards any current attempts to turn or return to ontology in both its idealist and materialist guises, as a predominant mode of philosophizing. It sees any such attempts for what they are, ways of producing and hence mastering the world, and then passing it on as a fact to others. The brief reflections offered today are linked to my previous work on what it means to live a good life at a time when the very notion of life is undergoing a radical reformulation, both on a philosophical and biotechnological level. But I'm less concerned here with a critical discussion of different theoretical positions on ethics and more with sketching out an affirmative proposal for an ethics that makes sense and that senses its own making. So the idea of ethical call of matter expands on my argument from bioethics in the age of new media in which I positioned bioethics as an originary philosophy situated even before ontology. That idea was inspired by the work of Emmanuel Levinas 
although I remained troubled by the humanist limitations of Levinas's ethics, whereby a primordial responsibility exerted upon me always came from human others. In bioethics as an ethics of life, the way I understand it, the human self has to respond to an expanded set of obligations that affect her, make an impression on them, allow for his differentiation from the world around them, and demands a response that is not just a reaction. While I do recognize, together with other theorists of post-anthropocentric thought, that it's not all about us, I also acknowledge the singular human responsibility which is exercised both by philosophical theory, which is consciously undertaken by a few, and philosophical practice, which is a much more common undertaking, even if not always a conscious one. This recognition hopefully justifies, to some extent, the reluctant yet also sometimes inevitable use of the pronoun I in my talk, and the multiple paradoxes implied in any attempt on the part of a singular, female-identified human writer to author a post-Anthropocene ethics. The method behind my ethics project can be loosely described as a critical vitalism. It involves rethinking and remaking life both as a social construct and a carbon-based construct, and what we can do with it. Starting from the premise that everything is interconnected, Timothy Morton, it considers differentiation within those processes of connectivity while offering a reflection on human situatedness in and responsibility for different connections of relations of which we are part. Situated at the crossroads of continental philosophy and art, the project inscribes itself in the trajectory of what Timothy Morton has called the ecological thought. Yet still following Morton, this is a curious kind of ecology, as it's not based on any prelapsarian romanticized notion of nature that can allegedly be recouped in order to make the world and our lives in it better. Taking such life as yet non-valorized, historically specific, minimal condition, the framework of critical vitalism I'm adopting remains attuned to stoppages in life, seeing life as both a becoming and a fracturing process. If, as Tim Ingold claims, wherever there is life, there is a movement, we can perhaps also add that wherever there is movement, there, are, there also tends to be stoppage, Otherwise, how would we be able to recognize movement as movement? It's precisely the tension between movement as an enabling force of becoming, a point we can develop not just from the philosophy of Bergson and Deleuze, but also from the anthropological thought of Ingold, and stoppage, so tension between movement and stoppage, as an in inevitable alteration in the rhythm of life that is of interest to me. Critical vitalism considers how differences in movement and speed ensue in matter, who they matter to, how matter resists and recoils, and to what effect. In this context, ethics becomes a way of taking responsibility by the human for various sorts of thickenings in the universe across different scales, and of responding to the tangled mesh of everyday connections and relations. This is how human agency can be exercised Although we have to bear in mind that such agency is partly non-human, never fully conscious, and always entangled. And this is the mode in which my minimal ethics for the Anthropocene operates. Yet even though scientists 
still haven't unequivocally declared the, that the designation of the new epoch, such as the Anthropocene, is fully justified, the term itself has already been renamed by cultural theorists as the Anthropocene, showing the obscenity of it all, the Capitalocene, the Hthulocene, the Eurocene, the Plantationocene, the Technocene, with questions being raised about the viability of its universalizing logic. My own use of the term Anthropocene is as an ethical pointer rather than as a scientific descriptor. In other words, the Anthropocene serves for me as a designation of the human obligation towards the geo and biosphere. So even if the Anthropocene is about the age of man, the ethical thinking it designates is strongly post-anthropocentric in the sense that it doesn't consider the human to be the dominant or the most important species, nor does it see the world as arranged solely for human use and benefit. The term does, however, entail an appeal to human singularity, not to be confused with human superiority, coupled with a recognition that we can make a difference to the ongoing dynamic processes taking place in the biosphere and the geosphere of which we are part. Minimal ethics for the Anthropocene is therefore not just an unupdated form of environmental ethics. It doesn't pivot on any coherent notion of an environment as an identifiable entity, but rather concerns itself with the dynamic relations between entities across various scales, such as stem cells, flowers, dogs, humans, rivers, electricity pylons, computer networks, and planets, to name but a few. This is why the closest way of describing this kind of minimal ethics would be as an ethics of life, with life understood both philosophically and biologically. Its starting premise is that we as humans are making a difference to the arrangements of what we are calling the world. Naturally, we are not the only or even the most important actors that are making such a difference. It would be extremely naive and short-sighted to assume that as would be to assume that we can affect or control any occurrences uh, within that world. But we are perhaps uniquely placed to turn the making of such difference into an ethical task. Thanks to our human ability to tell stories and to philosophize, we can not only grasp the deep historical stratification of values through an involvement in what Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari called a geology of morals, but also work out possibilities for making better differences across various scales. While our participation in the differentiation of matter is ongoing, frequently collective or distributed, and often unconscious, ethics names a situation when those processes of differentiation are accounted for, when they occur as a cognitive, affective effort to rearrange the solidified moral strata with a view to producing a better geomoral landscape, one that sustains not only us humans, but also other beings, as well as life itself. Ethics is therefore a form of managing the movement of life, performed from within life itself. The ethics discussed here is minimal in the sense it's non-systemic, so it doesn't remain rooted in any larger conceptual system, and it's non-normative, which is to say it doesn't rest on any fixed prior values, nor does it postulate any firm values in the process. Inevitably, for some people, a non-normative ethics may be a conceptual blind alley that will not deliver what it promises. For me, in turn, non-normativity is the only possible way of thinking, thinking ethics and life generally 
in a responsible and non-hubristic way from amidst life itself. But wary of kind of capital V values, I embark on this project with one minimal assumption, a conviction that we have a responsibility to engage with life, materially and conceptually, because as we know from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. What counts as the examination of life goes beyond the Socratic method of inquiry instantiated between two parties with a view to eliminating wrong hypotheses. For me, it also involves physicalist engagement with the matter of life, with its particles and unfolding. So getting your hands and minds dirty, you can say, getting some soil of kind of um, stuff of the earth under your fingernails. The recognition of the non-necessity of the universe and of the emergence of life, including conscious life, in it, doesn't diminish our human responsibility for this medium-sized planet we call home and its surroundings, or for its human and non-human inhabitants. However, it does potentially strip any mode of philosophizing about it of a certain explanatory and interventionist hubris. This kind of post-anthropocentric standpoint poses a challenge to human exceptionalism, but it also remains accountable to cite Karen Barad for the role we play in the differential constitution and differential positioning of the human among other creatures, living and non-living ones. So even though it's not all about us, we humans have a singular responsibility to give an account of the differentiation of matter of which we are part. Ethics is therefore uh, constitutively linked with poet poetics because it comes to us through images and stories, through narratives of different genre and kinds. The poetic role of art, which the Greek term poiesis, stands for bringing forth or creation and should be recognized here as fundamental in, in world making, rather than merely aesthetic or ornamental. The minimalism of the ethics project presented today to you doesn't therefore just refer to the premises of its main argument but also to its form. Aimed as an exercise in brevity, it adopts a formal structure that comprises 21 theses. The aim here is to say just enough. The strong link between ethics and poetics is something we can pick up in the work of philosophers such as Heidegger and Derrida and feminist thinkers such as Luz Irigaray and Sixo. This is why I would like to encourage you to listen to these 21 theses on minimal ethics as if you were listening to poetry. The universe is constantly unfolding, but it also temporarily stabilizes into entities. None of the entities are pre-planned or necessary. Humans are one class of such entities, which is as accidental and transitory as any other class. The differentiation between process and entity is a heuristic but it allows us to develop a discourse about the world and about ourselves in that world. The world is an imaginary name we humans give to the multitude of unfoldings of matter. Transitory stabilizations of matter do matter to us humans, but they do not matter all in the same way. Ethics is a historically contingent human mode of becoming in the world and of becoming different from the world. Ethics is therefore stronger than ontology, it entails becoming something in response to there being something else, even though the something else is only a temporary stabilization. This response is not just discursive, but also affective and corporeal. Ethics is necessary because it is inevitable. 
We humans must respond to there being other processes and other entities in the world. Our response is a way of taking responsibility for the multiplicity of the world and for our relations to and with it. Such responsibility can always be denied or withdrawn, but a response will have already taken place nonetheless. Responsibility isn't just a passive reaction to pre-existing reality. It involves making actively, actively making cuts to the ongoing unfolding of matter in order to stabilize it. Material cuts or incisions undertaken by humans can be ethical decisions, even if the majority of such cuts into matter are nothing of the kind. Even if ethics is inevitable, ethical events are rare. Ethic requires an account of itself. Ethics precedes politics, but also makes a demand on the political as the historically specific order of at times collaborative and at times competitive relations between human and non-human entities. As a practice of material and conceptual differentiation, ethics entails violence, but it should also work towards minimizing violence. There is therefore value in ethics, even if ethics itself needs no prior values. Ethics is a critical mobilization of the creative principle of life in order to facilitate a good life. Ethics enables the production of better modes of becoming, whose goodness is worked out by humans in the political realm in relation with and with regard to non-human entities and entanglements. And there is more that you uh, hear and there's a link to, uh, I use Instagram as a, a kind of notepad for visual research and there is also the minimal ethics book is available open access published with Open Humanities Press so it can be downloaded for free if you're interested. And in a minimal style I finished a bit early but that's probably just enough. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.